So we got Big Jake. Say hello. Hey, how's it going? And the liquor man himself, Chris. Yeah, yeah. One with all the history. Um, today we've got a special guest, a friend of mine, and he's got a pretty raw story to tell. I'd like to introduce my friend, brother in Christ, and one hell of a barber, uh, E.G. the Overcomer. E.G., go for it, brother. How y'all doing today? I'm good, man. <laughs> right, yeah. Good to see you. So you've got one heck of a story to tell. Now, a lot of people have heard uh, the church version of your testimony. And what we'd like to hear is the real, the raw story. I mean, whatever you're willing to put out there. Okay. You'd like me to go ahead and start? Oh, definitely. Okay. Uh, my name is uh, Estevan Hernandez, also known as EG, the Overcomer. And um, go ahead and get right into this. Um, my brother Shannon asked me to come share my story today. And um, we'll go ahead and start off with, um, as far as bad guys I can remember, I've always been throw it off um i was born in denton texas i uh, lived in argyle until i was 10 at the age of seven uh my mom couldn't handle me i was always a, a wild child and so what the system would say is they classified me as adhd and add and they diagnosed me that when i was seven years old and uh they put me on riddlin hmm and uh, the Ritalin uh, really messed me up. It gave me suicidal thoughts. I tried to hang myself off my bunk bed. Really? That at, young? At seven years old. Um, I threw knives at my mom, and I tried to jump in a bonfire. Um, it really did mess me up. At that point in time, my mom uh, took me off Ritalin and put me on Adderall. And uh, I guess uh, you could say it helped me. It made me like a zombie and calm me down. Um, I have a little brother. I always made life hard for him consistently. I'd always beat him up. And my brother was really a passive person, and I was wild. Um, I traumatized him a lot when he was little. Uh, at the age of 10, my parents had a lot of problems. And they got a divorce. But my mother didn't tell me that that they were getting a divorce. She said that we were just going to my grandparents' house uh, to take care of my grandparents because they were terminally ill. At that point in time, uh, my mom uprooted us from Argyle, Texas, which is a small town, and moved us to Lamarck, Texas, on the other side of Houston, on your way to Galveston. And uh, so it was a totally different environment. My, uh, I'd get in fights a lot. My mom would get a lot of calls from, um, from the school because of me fighting, had to come up there all the time. And 
Uh, I was there for about a year. And my teacher had told my mother that you need to move him to a different school because he's starting to adapt to his environment. And uh, at that point, my mom moved me to Dickinson School, which was a little bit better for me. Um, Esteban, when you say adapt. uh, She moved me from a small, real small town school to an all-black school. And I'm half Hispanic and half white. And uh, I was the only kid like that in my school. Hmm. So the consistent fights in the bathroom um, all the time. So that's why they told my mom that she needed to move me because I'm adapting to my environment. Meaning you were going left. Yeah. Yeah. I was going left quick and uh, trying to figure out where I fit in this world. So at that age, uh, so she moved me to another school and we live with my grandparents and, and, I had a real bad problem stealing. I mean, I would, I would, uh, my mom would go to bed, I'd go into her purse, take money out of it, and I'd take money out of my grandfather's wallet. I'd take money from my brother. My brother had to hide his money because I, I would steal it, and I'd get caught doing it, but it's like I didn't really care. I had no concerns of who I hurt in the process of it, um, and I was real rebellious. Uh, my grandmother died um, in her bed, and then a couple weeks later, my grandfather died. Um, and so I told my mom, I said, well, since grandma and grandpa are not here no more, can we go back home? And that's when uh, she told me that we weren't ever going back home. And at that point, I was full of a lot of anger because I felt like my mother lied to me, and I felt like, you know, like if you would have just been real with me. So I, I it made me uh, feel a certain type of way towards her. And I, I really didn't want to hear what she had to say. And in the process of that, it was a lot of, you know, my dad lived in Denton, my mom lived in the Mark. And so when we went to visit my dad, I'd hear my mom talk about my dad and talk bad about him all the way there. And then we'd meet in Centerville and I'd hear my dad talk, all, talk bad about my mom all the way to the other side of Dallas. And it was a consistent thing to the point where I felt like I had to talk bad about my mom around my dad and talk bad about my mom around, uh, talk, talk bad about my dad around my mom. Hmm. I felt like I had to agree with them. So they, at a very young age, they make me, made me pick sides, which made me um, have harsh feelings towards both of them. And in the process of that, I didn't want to hear anything they had to say. And... I made it in my mind that I'll do, I'm going to do whatever I feel like I want to do. And um, my mom, she couldn't handle me. We had some kids that lived next door to her. And in, in her mind, they were uh, bad influences on me. But not realizing that I was uh, the influencer, the person that was influencing them. Uh, they, when they moved in, me and my cousin got caught uh, breaking into their house. Um, we got in trouble for that. My mom, uh, she really couldn't handle me. I, I would always just do whatever I want. And, um, so she decided that, you know, she was going to send me back to my dad's. When I got over to my dad's, it just got worse. Um, I still had a problem stealing. And, um, 
a friend of mine invited me to church with him one Wednesday. And I went with him. And I figured out how to break into the Coke machines at the church. And so I used to know how to pop the lock. And so I'd pop it and, and twist it open. And I'd take all the dollars out of it every Wednesday night. Jeez. And uh, finally, the youth pastor caught me. And they took me to the office, the pastor's office. And they were talking to me. And uh, the pastor said, uh, we're not going to call the police, but we really... They, we really would like to, you know, talk to you some more. And the youth pastor said, oh, yeah, we are calling the police. And so they called the police on me that night. I was arrested at the church. And you're how old at this time? Probably about 11, 11 or 12. I was arrested at the church, took me to the police station. My dad came, picked me up, and that was my first charge. Was theft of a coin operating machine from a church. And I got, that was the first time I was placed on juvenile probation. Can't tell you exactly how long I was placed on probation because it was consistent. I was consistently on probation and that was my first charge. Um, from there on, uh, I had met some friends down the street. Used to go down there and party, drinking, doing drugs, whatever I'd get my hands on. And then, uh, met some other people in Denton that my dad would drop me off at their house on the weekends to go hang out with them. And we'd be out stealing, drinking, smoking. Um, one of my friends one time came and picked me up. We were trying to figure out how to get some money. Um, and so there was a lady down the street that had a garage sale. And I told him, I said, well, we can go get the money from that garage sale. And so he said, if you're going to do it, I'll drive. And so we went to the garage sale, and I robbed a woman who was pregnant for her money bag at gunpoint. Uh, took off running. Uh, we, we actually ended up going to the gym, counting out all the money, went and bought a bunch of weed. Uh, cops ran up on my house looking for me uh, because I had used a firearm, and they considered me a threat. And my, pulled my dad out of the house, went and looked in the house, couldn't find me. I showed up, and my dad said, uh, what'd you do? So what are you talking about? He said, well, the cops came looking for you. And uh, I said, for what? He said, I don't know. You tell me. What'd you do? At that time, they had already, my grandmother had called the cops back, and they were already knocking on the door. I tried to run out the back. Uh, they chased me down, slammed me on the ground before I could get to the field. Um, and I was arrested there for aggravated robbery with a deadly weapon. And I went back to juvenile. I spent three months in juvenile facility, was released and extended probation. And that was my second charge. I ended up uh, through my dad's yard and, and through, if you, he had a uh, one acre. And if we went through the pasture, we could get all the way to the elementary school. So during the summertime, I'd go out to the elementary school and ride my bike over there and stuff. Well, one day the elementary school was unlocked. And so I went in there when they were starting, the teachers were starting to bring all their stuff back in. And I went to the office uh, and I, one of the other doors was locked, unlocked. And I went in there and I started opening drawers and cabinets and uh, found all the money from concession stands and everything. And so I started taking all the money out of there. I took a little bit at first and then... Um, Realized I could do it again, so I went back and did it again. And uh, I probably 
took thousands of dollars from the school to the point where I took one of my friends who was down the street from me, and we went out there. Um, we, then we started going into the classrooms, and one of the teachers ran into the classroom. And I saw him, so he took, out the, took off out the sliding glass door, and so did I. And I got away. I ran and jumped over a ditch, but he got caught. So the police had, she said, I know who you are, but I don't know who that is. And uh, later on that day, they had went to his house. And uh, he gave me up. The cops came to my house. They, my, my grandmother let them in. I wasn't there. They went to my room. They found some of the stuff that was stolen from the school. So when I did get home, the cops were at my door again. They arrested me again for a burglary of a building. Uh, went back, probably did four months in juvenile. Got released out on probation again. At that time, my dad was struggling paying my court fees, so they threatened to lock him up. Um, and that was uh, my first burglary of a building. I got arrested probably not even four or five more months later, breaking into another building. And I went back to jail. I ended up doing six months. And then I ended up doing four months in juvenile and signed for um, signed for a post-adjudication program that they had there. So it was a six-month boot camp. And I stayed in that boot camp for six months, get to a certain point in phases that you could, you know, get uh, furloughs. You get furloughs. And so uh, I ended up going to a six-month post-adjudication program where it's like six-month boot camp. And it was at the juvenile facility. And you were in-house. So at a certain phases, I could uh, go on furloughs. And I was able to eventually go home with my dad. And finally, they released me. And I would always get in trouble in school. I never, I never really finished out a year once I went back and lived with my dad in actual, at the actual school. I would always go to alternative schools. So I was getting in trouble for fighting. Um, as I got out of post-adjudication program, I went back to school and I would uh, have my dad drop me off at the gas station around from the school. And uh, I'd go in there and buy an apple and I'd make a pipe out of it. And I'd go behind the church that was next to the school and I'd smoke weed before I went to school every day. And I'd throw the apple in the woods. You spent a lot of time around church. A lot of time around church. Yes, I did. Um, and then uh, one day I went, went back into the school and I would skip first period. It was usually PE. And I would show up in the hall right before they went to second period real high. And there was a girl that I was talking to for a while, but I ended up breaking up with her to date her friend when she was mad about it. And she made a big scene in the hall one day and told me, she's like, you think you're so cool? You smoke weed before school? Da, da, da. And I was like, I should slap you in the face for that. And this is the only time in my life that I ever put my hands on a woman. And, I, and she said, got in my face, so why don't you do it then? And I barely slapped her in the face. She went to the office, and the police came and arrested me. And I went, to, went back to jail um, for assault. Her, her and her mom dropped the charges, but the state picked them up and extended my probation. At that point, uh, my dad was really furious with me, and, uh, but I really wasn't trying to hear what he had to say. I'd sneak out of the windows at night, go down the street to my friend's house, get messed up. He would drill screws into the windows and the screens so that I couldn't get out of them. 
And I'd be out there the next day with a screwdriver, screw them out so I could pop the screen back off. Uh, one day I left and uh, I left at night and I was walking back home when they were all, my dad and them were asleep. And uh, there was a group of Hispanics that were outside and started saying something to me. And I started saying something back to them. And uh, one of them swung a lead pipe and hit me in my right side of my face, which fractured. Uh, I had fractures in my, my right side of my face, which makes my right side sag a little bit more in my eye. Then I got home and my dad was mad and furious at me and um, he had to take me to the hospital. Uh, after that, I ended up getting uh, arrested for a burglary habitation. The, actually, the people that I went to their house to go do stuff at, when they weren't home, I would go and I figured out how to get through their back door and I'd go into their house and steal stuff from them. And... Uh, I, I stole her father's guns and took them home. And someone had said something and that day before I didn't go to school. And the, the, the police were worried that I would take the guns to school. And they showed up at my house. And I was asleep in my room. And my grandmother let them in. And they showed up in there and held me at gunpoint, arrested me, found the guns, took me to jail. And still, and still they extended my probation. Uh, as soon as I... That happened I, probably a month out of juvenile again on probation. I got pulled over with a buddy of mine for smoking weed, and we got arrested for possession. I went back to jail, stayed in there for another month and a half, and uh, uh, stayed there for another month and a half. I got out, and one night I stole my dad's car, and he woke up and realized his car was gone walked down to the police station the police station do you want us to file a report and he said not yet let me see if my son comes home and uh he said well if we find him first we're gonna charge him and i ended up showing back up home my dad whooped my butt tripped out on me but he couldn't control me no one could control me i was out of there man and uh i called my mom and i told her i said you know i'm just trying to get my life right i'm tired but I can't do it here. And I asked her if I could come back and live with her. And she let me. Uh, so I went back and lived with my mom for a little while. She moved to Leak City. Uh, she put me in a better school. And I was doing good. I ended up uh, standing up for someone and fighting someone in the bathroom who was getting picked on. And got arrested. Went to jail. My mom. And so I got a. I stood up for a kid in the bathroom. And I got arrested. Um, me and that kid. I told him he took the kid's backpack and I, I was actually in cross country with the kid and uh, he was like a long, he had long hair surfer kid and uh, the kid every time after first period uh, cross country would catch him in the courtyards and mess with them and I heard him say in the locker room that, you know, he hated going to after first period because, you know, that kid always messed with them and stuff and I said, and I told him, why don't you beat him up? And he's like, I can't fight him and I saw him getting picked on in the courtyard and I told the kid to give him his backpack back and he had told a buddy of mine, he said, if that dude thinks he's tough, he can go to the bathroom with me. And I told him, let's go. And uh, we ended up going to the bathroom. I ended up slamming his head against the wall. And on the other side of the wall was the computer lab. So all the kids were in the classroom, and they just hear banging on the wall. And teachers tried to come in. We took off. The police uh, from the school caught me running across the football field um, and arrested me. And I went to jail, and they had... I called my mom and asked her if she'd get me out. And she told me, no, you can stay in there. Um, 
eventually I got released and tried to walk home. Uh, my mom found me, picked me up. And then she felt bad because my coach had told her that I had stood up for somebody. And that's the reason why I went to jail. And um, she wouldn't get me out. But my mom sat down with a bunch of rules and was like, this is what we're going to do. And I wasn't trying to hear it. So I ran away. I took off that night and ended up uh, from house to house. I started robbing drug dealers um, to the point where I was gone for a year and a half. No one could find me. I think I was 15 or 16 at this time. Uh, eventually, a year and a half later, and in the process of all that, I was stealing cars, changing out license plates, driving around in stolen vehicles, changing numbers from ones to zeros, and stealing and smoking and doing any kind of drugs from Somas to, to Xanax to weed, drinking. Uh, a year and a half later, the dudes that I was uh, hanging out with, uh, I was selling drugs outside of a Motel 6. And um, the police ran up on us. I took off running because I had been on the run for a year and a half. Cop chased me down and I was trying to hop a fence and they tasered me. And uh, next thing you know, I had like three guns pointed in my face. Uh, the cops arrested me. And they said that if, uh, if I wouldn't have ran, that they would have just called my mom and let the juvenile system figure it out. But... Uh, I got arrested. My mom came and saw me and my probation officer said, there's nothing that we can do for you anymore. And like, we've given you so many chances and we're going to have to send you to TYC. And TYC is Texas Youth Commission. It's a prison for juveniles. So I signed as a FAO, a firearm offender, because that was my last thing that I was on probation. And since I violated my probation, that's what I went to TYC for was uh, possession of, and, uh, possession of stolen firearms and burglary habitation. And so they classified me as a FAO, a firearm offender with a minimum length of stay of 12 months. When I got into TYC, TYC is all street gangs and I'm not, was never the person to take orders from people. So if I wasn't anything in the world, I'm not going to be anything in there. And in the process of that, uh, if you want to go home in 12 months, you're going to fall in line and basically, you know, you're going to give up your stuff and stuff like that. So in my mind, I thought, you know, I'm not giving anybody anything. Um, that's the way my dad was. And so I guess I ain't going home. Um, I remember uh, getting in a fight with the Southwest Cholo uh, behind door four. Door four was where they would keep all the cleaning supplies. And it was on a magnet. So you could uh, get the picket to unlock door four and tell them that you needed to get the mop out or something. And um, you'd put a piece of toilet paper up there. And then two people would wait back there and the person with the cleaning supplies and we'd pop it. And two people would run back there who would fight and one person to watch. And I went back there and fought him. That was my first fight in TYC. And he uh, knocked my teeth, my two front teeth halfway off. So um, for the rest of that time, I only had chipped two front teeth. And it was a consistent fighting all the time. I got into it with Latin Kings. I got... At one point in time, I, I had all the Latin kings wanting to beat me up because I got into a, a Latin king named Bird. they take me to security. My dad would come and visit me in TYC, and I always had black eyes or banged up. But in, my mindset was I don't even really care anymore. So to me, it was a game. I ended up doing 27 months on a 12-month sentence because I couldn't complete the program. 
And so they ended up pushing me out on population management because it gets overpopulated and I've already been there way over my minimum length to stay. They had to push me out. Mm. So I got out. I'm on probation that period of time. And uh, they had a guy that would come to my house and visit me uh, for probation to do house visits. And I had to do these like classes for like six months. And, uh, but that didn't, that didn't change anything. Actually, the lie that I had told myself that my problem was stealing. So I'm going to sell drugs and buy everything. Cause that makes sense. Yeah. And so I said, at least you work for it. I set out. I started going by the name Sonny. And I set out to put a reputation behind that name. A month and a half out of uh, TYC, a uh, buddy of mine, like we would smoke weed together. And he told me this dude that sells weed and that when he goes to high school, like he leaves it at his house. And he said he's been going over there. And when his house is unlocked, usually, and he goes upstairs and takes a little bit out of his bag. And he had told me about it. And I told him, I said, okay, well, um, I want to get some. So he told me where his house was. And he said, just get a little bit so he doesn't know that it's gone. The kid's dad was home actually in the living room when I went into his house. And I went upstairs with him in the house and went to the kid's room. And it was a big trash bag full of weed. And I said, you know what? I ain't taking a little bit. I'm taking it all. So I took all of it. And then uh, the kid called him. was like, someone stole this. Da, 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 and he got this. And and. My friend told me, he's like, why did you take it all? Now he's tripping. I said, well, tell him I took it. So he told him that I took it. And the kid showed up at my house with his dad. And his dad comes down my driveway and tells me, you want to come and steal from us? And I told him, I said, well, I said, why don't you ask your son what I took first? And he said, what did he take, son? And he said, he took my weed. And his dad grabbed him by the arm, took him up to the car and they left and I called that kid and I told him, I said, you want to bring your dad to my house, but if you come and fight me and you whoop me, I'll give it all back to you. And he said, no, I hope you choke on it, smoke on it and die. And that was the beginning where I was very, I didn't care about anything. Like, um, so I started trafficking drugs from Houston, which a buddy of mine, his name's Weddle. I met him in, in TYC and we clicked and, uh, became really good friends at that point in time. Um, I had hit him up and he was, he hooked me up with his mom and his mom was dating a pharmacist who owned a pharmacy. And I told him I needed Xanax bars. My dad started realizing what I was doing when I went and picked up the first 500 because I had to put it in order so that she could let her guy know and that he could give him enough time to sneak him out of the pharmacy. And I'd get them for a dollar a piece. And bottles of 500 never been open. So I drove down there and got my first 500. Came back, flipped it really quick. Uh, went back down there, got some more. And my dad realized what I was doing. He said, if this is what you're going to do, you can't do it here. What were you selling them for? Getting them for a buck. How much? What was your price? Three. And... So he uh, told me, you can't do that here. And I said, okay, well, I'm leaving. And at that time, I was 17, about to turn 18. And he said, sir, if I told you don't go, son, would you listen? And I said, nope. And uh, I took off that day. Ended up staying with some people. um, And I 
kept going back out there, picking up probably about 2000 at a time, coming back and selling them. But the people that I was staying with, they, they um, would go to these after hour raving clubs and they take Xanax, they would take uh, ecstasy and acid and shrooms. And, and then whenever they came back, they wanted Xanax for me to go to sleep. Um, they eventually convinced me to go out there with them to this club. And at that time I had $2,000 in my pocket and um, someone said, cause I don't fit the description of most people that are in that club. Someone said that I was selling, which I wasn't, but I did have $2,000 in my pocket, a big wad and then a wad of uh, smaller, like uh, bigger bills, which was a smaller wad. And each one was a thousand. So security that took me into the bathroom and searched me and they're like, where'd you get all this money? I said, it ain't from selling in here. And, uh, they said, okay, well, they put it back in my pocket, which is what I thought. And uh, when I got out outside, they kicked me out. When I got outside, I realized the, the little wad was missing. So I really tripped out. Chris was the doorman at the time. Um, and so I started, you know, talking to him crazy. And he's like, do you realize where you're at? And I said, I don't care where I'm at. I said, you want to tell that dude to give me my money back? And I'm not the one... And in, at that point in time, uh, I guess I, I, I got really upset and I tried to figure out where this dude lived and I couldn't figure it out. So we ended up, my buddy who I lived with, his name was Chris too. He worked at a pet store and he was real big on like snakes and breeding exotic snakes in his house and stuff. And he said, uh, well, what do you want to do about it? And I told him, I said, I have an idea. And we found out where uh, the guy that actually robbed me, his name was DJ. And we found out where he, where he, uh, the, a party that he was going to. And I told my buddy Chris to order a rattlesnake. And uh, we got a rattlesnake and we put it in a potato sack. And then we got a bunch of bull snakes and put them in the back of my Hondo Accord. And we, um, knocked DJ's cousin out at a party and put him in my trunk. And then the, um, the back part where it opens up, where it opens up, where you can kind of see in the trunk when you put the armrest down, I had opened it up. So at that time, all he would hear was rattlesnakes and he'd be getting bit by bull snakes. And, uh, so I told him to give me the address and he gave me everything. And then, uh, we pulled him out of the trunk and he told us to get him to the hospital. And I told him, I pulled out the potato sack and I said, you'll be all right. It's just bull snakes. And we left him there in that field. Uh, I ended up getting DJ's address. Um, and then that was the first time that I, I became addicted to home invasions. And uh, we ran into DJ's house and zip tied him up and took all his drugs, all his money. and then. At that point in time, it took me to a whole different level of the person that the enemy had really changed me into. Um, and after that, it was consistent. I, I was addicted. I didn't even need the money. I was just addicted to the power of, of running into someone's house and taking control. I was going to say the rush. The rush of it. Hey, um, by the way, people, uh, if you're still with us, I, I, I promise there's a happy ending to this. Yeah, yeah. 
Yeah. He Jesus he he was a bad dude. And and we're really seeing that, but the, there's there's a happy ending. There's to this. light at the end of the tunnel. So uh the dude Chris that ran that uh that was one of the security guards at the club or DJ worked. See, because of all the problems that DJ had caused and all the problems that I had caused in the midst of trying to get my money back, DJ got fired. Um because Chris had told the owner that he really did take his thousand dollars, which caused a lot of problems within their club and, um, which opened up a door for me and, uh, me and Chris became cool. And I hit up my friend in Houston in Pasadena where, uh, Tom, can you get me ecstasy? And he said, yeah, for a dollar 50 a piece. If you buy a thousand, I said, okay, I'm going to come pick up my first thousand. And that's when I got into the ecstasy game. Um, I came back, started fronting out 50s and 100s to people running in clubs for me um, at 18 years old. Um, so at that point in time, I had Chris, who was a security guard, and then I tried to sew up certain clubs and ended up getting into a, a club that they called Eden, which turns into uh, what well, it's Jaguars Club, which turns into Eden After Hours. And uh, meeting some uh, really big uh, guys, um, I actually went to another after hours club after that. And, uh, there were some people there and I had gotten to it. One of my runners and I beat him up in there. And some guy named tiny wanted to talk to me, which who sold GHB out of his trunk in those, in that club. And, uh, me and him started talking and I told him the, uh, the plug that I had. So then I started bringing anywhere from seven to 10,000, whichever, every other month back from Houston, uh, to Dallas. Uh, I had three trap houses in, in Denton, Texas, and um, at one point in time, uh, a buddy of mine, we were going back to one of them, and I saw a car parked down the road, so I pulled around the corner and told him, walk back to the place and tell me what that car is, and he told me it was a cop. So I, in the middle of the night, I had a friend of mine come and pick up everything and take off to Fort Worth. I started talking to this girl that lived in Fort Worth, so I started staying out there with her, and... Um, there was a guy in those apartments at the time who, uh, who sold weed and stuff and his name was Slim. Um, and he had came over to her house and said, uh, that he had some speakers for sale. And, and then I told him, I said, okay, well, let me go look at him. So he took me to his house and he had some weed for sale. We, uh, ended up going, we ended up going to his house I told him if they work, I'll buy them. You don't got to sit there and try to sell me. And he opened his drawer, weighed out some weed. I bought some weed from him. We went back to the house. We carried the speakers all the way to my car. And we went back to, the, back to her apartment. And we smoked. And um, at that time, he had said, I guess in his mind, he said, oh, you know what? I gave them to you for two less. I'm going you know, to need some more money. And I said, you're going to need some more what? He said, I'm going to need some more money. And I was like, well, then, come on, you can go get them. You're going to carry them back to your house by yourself. And he's like, no, no, you know what? You're good. You go ahead and have them. And uh, that ran me the wrong way to the point where he actually passed down the living room. And I told my buddy, is he asleep? So we ended up getting his keys and going to his house and taking all his stuff. And then um, we kicked him out. And he didn't realize it. He ended up coming back with a gun, tripping out. I wasn't there at the time. Um, Two weeks later, I guess he had gotten killed, 
Um, someone ran in his house and shot him, but that was not me. Uh, but I did get picked up by the police and was questioned very heavily, which, um, which put the police in Denton to know where I'm at. Why they were looking for me? Um, I ended up getting a call from a guy who wanted to pick up 200 X pills. And he told me to meet him in Denton. And I told him, I'm not going to Denton. It's too hot. And he said, man, just meet me right here at this gas station. And I went against my better judgment, but I went out to Denton. And when I pulled up to the gas station, uh, I called him. He didn't answer. And there were, I saw a cop pull in and a cop pulled around the corner. And I told my friend, get out of here. We're going to call him. Tell him to meet me somewhere else. We got halfway down the road and the cops pulled us over. And they literally came in from every direction, under covers. Um, they had me on the ground in handcuffs. I heard over the radio. We got him as Savon Hernandez, a.k.a. Sonny. And they arrested me at that time and arrested me with uh, two other people with me. And they got me into the police station. At this time, I'm, I'm 18. I'm considered an adult. So I went to the county jail and... Um, the police pulled me in the back and they told me like, you give up some people, you know, you're about to go to prison. You're about to do a lot of time. Like we can help you out. And I told them I'm not giving you anything. And they said, what about the other two people? I said, they don't know nothing about it. It's all mine. And so they actually walked out of there and they said, uh, they told the lady at the, they said, well, he's not, he doesn't want to help us out. So go ahead and hit him with manufacturing delivery too. And I asked the lady, I said, what's that Carrie? And she said, well, you just bumped your charges up to the first degree for five ninety nine. I said, man. And my mom came into the county and saw me, and she told me, this is what you're going to do for the rest of your life, son. This isn't what I want for you. And I wasn't trying to hear it. I'm looking at five ninety nine years. The girl that I was with, I tried to tell her where $10,000 was in our air vent to bomb me out. And she came up to the county like a couple of days later with new phone, new jewelry and told me the money wasn't there. And I remember slamming the phone against the window and telling her, if I get out of here, I'm going to kill you. And, uh, I went back to my cell. And, and so I was such a rage at that time. Like I got some dude and didn't kind of, they sell cigarettes on commissary and some dude had taken my cigarettes and I got ticked off. And when he was in the shower, I poured, um, I poured a hot pot full of boiling water over the top of his head. And um, they moved me to Section 6. That's where they send all, like, they call it the gladiator tank. And I went in there, and I got in a lot of fights. I ended up, uh, they offered me 10 years, TDC. And I told them, no, I'm not signing it. Give me five, I'll sign. They came back. Their second offer was 10 years TDC. I said, I'm not signing it. Give me five, I'll sign. They came back with eight years, and they said, if you don't sign it, you'll take, the, uh, take it to trial. And if you take it to trial, like, you are, you're, you're already guilty. They're going to give you 30. So I said, okay, let me sign. So I signed for eight years TDC. I went down TDC at 18 years old. Felt like I had something to prove, half Hispanic and half white. And um, they sent me to Gurney. I went to Gurney and then went to Hutchins. Um, at that time, uh, I 
I didn't get down with anything yet. Uh, I waited until I got to Dawson unit. And when I got to Dawson unit, um, there was a lot of Houston on Dawson. And so I got down with Houston Tango Blast. I faded my first quarter check, which is uh quarter short for corazón, which is a heart check. And they put two on one for a minute. Uh, at that point, you know, I started tripping and, um, I was down to fight whenever, whoever, wherever. I ended up actually making my first parole in 18 months down there. And then uh, within a week, I lost it. Uh, I got into a fight with a crip, and uh, they G4'd me. I felt like he was testing me because I made parole. And so much pride that uh, I, I punched him in the face and uh, lost my parole. They G4'd me and sent me to close custody in Dawson unit. And on Dawson unit, um, the my quarter check was three on one for a minute because of my half-breed. I didn't leave my two-man cell for probably about a week or so to go to chow because I was so banged up. I had fractured ribs, fractured jaw, but one of my eyes was swollen shut. Um, I was really, really banged up. But to me, it was, it was all a game. I was a knucklehead. And I always felt like I had something to prove and then trying to figure out where I fit in and all this um, with my complexion being white with a full Hispanic name and um, knowing who my dad is. Um, so I uh, actually started manipulating and influencing other people who were half breeds is what they called us down there, that we had to be the craziest ones out of all Houston. And um, I ended up making parole and getting the FI6 which we were the first uh, people to go to Breckenridge that were TDC inmates. Most of it was all probationers. I stayed over there for six months and I got out. And my mom had got remarried, so she moved from League City to Conroe. And so I tried to parole to my dad's, but uh, the pro my dad was at work and the office said that they don't allow felons to parole out there. So I paroled out to my mom's. And when I pulled out to my mom's, um, she ended up giving me a car. A month and a half out of um, TDC, a month and a half out of TDC, I ended up totaling out my car on Walden Road, going 75 miles per hour. Um, I hit a ditch sideways and spun around, hit it sideways again, ended up on the side of the road, car totaled out. I called a friend of mine to come pick me up. And he took me to my mom's. And he took me to my mom's. The police ended up coming, knocking on the door and asking me if I was driving my vehicle. And I said, yes. And they said, why'd you flee the scene of an accident? I said, my car was out of the way of traffic, so I didn't flee the scene of an accident. And then my mom said, is this car out of the way of traffic? They said, no. I said, yes, it is. And they said, well, we need you to come back out to the scene and uh, fill out some paperwork. And I was like, my mom said, is he being arrested? And they said, no. And then she said, well, can I drive him? And they said, no, he can ride with us. So I got in the car. And um, they got me back out to the scene. As soon as they pulled me out of the car, they uh, put handcuffs on me, told me I was being arrested for a DWI. I told them I didn't really start drinking until I got home, which I did have a beer or two before, that, uh, before the accident. But I really started hitting whiskey and bourbon when I got home and got wasted because that's the first time I've ever been in an accident. Um, I got arrested for DWI. Um, 
they got me back. I signed the paperwork to Greedro blow in a breathalyzer. They got me back to the police station at the county jail in Montgomery County. And, um, and they gave me a breath, uh, breathalyzer test and I blew under the legal limit. And I told them, how do you got me here? And I'm blowing under the legal limit. They told me that they can backtrack it to the time of the accident. So I sat in the holding cell and I never got called out to PC court until I got back to population. And when I got back to population, they finally called me out to PC court. Um, they knew what they were doing. They knew that, you know, if I stayed in there long enough, parole would catch me before I could parole out, before I could bond out. And so I made bond and I signed the bond paper and whatever. And they told me to take off my jumpsuit. They told me, put it right there. Don't put it in the basket. And I signed the bond and they said, we'll be right back. They came right back and they said, Blue weren't just hit you. Go ahead and put your clothes back on and we're taking you back. So I talked to, I had a quarter point attorney and I told him, I said, uh, what's the maximum they can give me on a class B misdemeanor? He said, uh, 180 days. I said, will it up? I want to take it to trial. And, uh, so he, I kept trying to get a trial date. I was already in there for three or four months. I started tripping. I actually fired my lawyer cause I felt like he wasn't doing anything for me. And I shaved my head and went aggravated. And then um, they moved me to a different tank. And as soon as I walked into the tank, someone told me, what's up, Wood? And I punched him in the face. And I told him, nah, he's stoned. And they uh, black banned me, put me in a single cell. And every time they let me out, I beat someone up. Um, I was real mad because I felt like the system was keeping me bound when I just did four years in TDC. And I was only out for a month and a half. And so I couldn't bond out, couldn't go anywhere. And so I raged. And um, eventually, uh they got me a court day and I already been sitting there with the maximum already on a class B misdemeanor. I already been there six months. I was actually going on to seven months and they got me a court date. My court date wasn't, I would have been in there for nine months on a class B misdemeanor. And I told him, I said, man, y'all are playing with my life. Go up there and get me time served. I'll see what parole is going to do with me. And, um, they went up there and got me time served. My parole officer came and saw me there and said, we're not, um, we're not going to send you to ISF for 30 days when you've already sat in here for six, for seven months. And so they released me. And when they released me, I was so full of rage and anger um, that I, I went off the deep end for real. And uh, I started robbing drug dealers um, and contribute to a lot of the drug distribution in Montgomery County. I was working at Sam's boat and at the back porch and selling cocaine out of both kitchens. Um, very unpredictable. I linked up with homeboys in Houston, started going to after hours, Houston clubs, um, picking up work and come back out here and selling it, robbing people. Uh, I would, uh, rob people and I would tell them that I did it. And my, my roommate at the time was my roommate in three different places. Johnny, he would tell me, he said, yeah, it's really messed up. What you do is that you, everything could be going good for you and you'll rob somebody. Tell them you did it. And then plot out this whole scheme, how you're going to make them look stupid when they try to come at you for it. And um, I would feed off the chaos. So I would create the chaos and then I'd feed off of it. And I was very unpredictable. The mother of my child, at that time she wasn't the mother of my child, but the girl that I had met, she, we were both really messed up. Uh, her mother had died. And, um, you know, on Halloween, on Valentine's Day uh, from an overdose. Uh, right when we started talking. So we were both really messed up people. A lot of doing a lot of drugs and uh, popping Molly. And um, I started selling a lot of cocaine. Um, the guy one time owed me money 
And, uh, and there's, there's actually people out here in Montgomery that know this story and were there. And, uh, there was a guy who owed me money for a quarter of Coke who was selling for me. We went to an after hours club and when we came back, he, uh, kept telling me he didn't have my money and I had been up on cocaine all night and drunk and drinking. And, um, and when he told me he'd get it to me, when he get it to me, when I saw him spending all the, a bunch of money at the club, I went into the kitchen in the drawer and I came out of the kitchen and I punched him in his face and I grabbed him by his tooth with a pair of pliers and ripped it out of his mouth. Um, so I, a lot of people, I was very unpredictable. And so a lot of people didn't know how to handle me or be around me. Um, I got it. I got it. Um, when I got out that the time on the month and a half of uh, six months for the DWI, my brother had told me, he said, uh, can you smoke weed? And I told him, no, I'm on parole. And he said, uh, what about serenity? I said, I can't smoke weed, bro. I'm on parole. And he's like, no, not weed serenity. He took me down to rock and roll it off in 1960. And we bought a bag of, uh, what they call fake weed or synthetic marijuana. And, um, that was the first time that I ever did it. And I became extremely addicted to it to the point where I was driving to 1960 or air or gas stations every single day to get a bag to smoke. And that was consistent for three years, every single day. Um, there was points where I would smoke it and then I'd have these constant nosebleeds and projectile vomit but I couldn't stop. I'd get stuck and be stuck in one spot for 30 minutes at a time. Um, it really had a control on me. I never been addicted to anything in my life the way I was addicted to that. I would, uh, roll blunts in my car and let it fall off the blunts on the floor so that I could come and scrape it up later on when I didn't have any to smoke again. And my friend Johnny would come home from the tattoo shop and tell me, he'd say, what are you doing, Sonny? Come on, man. I already got a bag. And we'd smoke. Um, so uh, I consistently stole, fought, went to parties, robbed, jacked, over and over and over and over. And that was my life. Um, my, me and the girl that I was dating at the time, we had been together already four years. And we had a daughter. And uh, when my daughter was born... I quit smoking uh, Serenity, but uh, I didn't stop selling, and I didn't stop robbing. Um, so the mother of my child, she kicked me out on my first Father's Day, left me for a dude that I sold cocaine to that used to shoot it up in my bathroom when I sold it to him. And it was my first Father's Day at 10 o'clock at night, and my mom came and uh, picked me up, and I was walking down the street with a bag. And uh, I got in her car. She, my, the mother of my child actually had to call my mom to come get me because she had threatened to call one of her best friend's husbands. And I had told her, if you call him over here, we're both going to jail because it's about to get bloody. So move everything around you don't want taken out of here. And um, so she didn't do that. And she called my mom. And my mom, I didn't want to hear from my mom. So I took off walking. And my mom found me walking with a bag in my hand. Came and picked me up. And I remember back when I was going to prison, I see all the times where God was chasing me. And like, like Shannon said, where, where um, I, I, I was around a lot of churches, <laughs> but I would never, never want anything to do with God. 
And I went to a prison. I never want nothing to do with Jesus. I used to say, man, I ain't come to prison to find Jesus. If I ain't find him out there, why do I want to come and find him in here? And um, I remember my mom picking me up that day. And at that point in time, I, I just had my daughter. And um, she was only four months. And I was broken. Um, my mom picked me up. And I'm screaming the Lord's name in vain. And over and over and she's told me, if you do that again, I'll pop you in your mouth. And I screamed at her, and I said, what's he ever done for me? And she said, what can he do for you, son? You won't let him in. And that night in my mom's guest room, I cried out to God. And I said, if you real, you show me, because I'm tired of living my life like this. And the presence of God came over that room and a peace that I never felt before. And God spoke to me that night, and he told me, seek me. And I couldn't understand what it was, but I knew that I experienced something and I wanted to know if this was real. So I started going to a big church and uh, it was a really, really big church. Uh, I started trying to direct traffic in the parking lot. I was going to all their young adults classes. I was going to anger management and I was seeking, but I was full of so much anger in me. And, um, I remember taking this class and one of the guys who was leading it told me, he said, uh, he said, what's going on with you? I could tell there's something bothering you. And he's like, after class, let's go talk into the room. So I went back there and talked to him and I just started sharing what's going on with me and telling him that, you know, uh, I'm trying to see what's up with this Jesus thing, but I got people trying to drop half a kilos on front in my lap. I got people trying to drop half a pound of molly in my lap, which no one's ever tried to do that before. And then I just started sharing them what's going on with me. And um, let's backtrack just for a second. When the mother of my child left me, um, the guy that she left me for, all I did was want to fight him. Um, when I found out that she had left me for him, I waited outside of his house in Walden with a 38 special. And I was and everything in my mind. I was going to shoot this dude. Um, the mother of my child actually called me the next morning because I had raged on her that night when I found out. And um, she called me the next morning and she said, where, where are you at? I said, why do you care? And she said, well, Tate didn't go home last night, just so you know. And I said, I know I waited outside of his house all night. Um, but th as uh, I started going to this big church and all that stuff happened, the mother of my child said that she wasn't allowed to talk to me anymore, that the guy that she was with said that she couldn't, she couldn't have a conversation with me anymore. So that my mother was the mediator between me and the, my daughter, between me and the mother of my child for my daughter. So I went to a bar over here on 105 and I ended up getting wasted and drunk and, uh, Left there, hit two parked vehicles in the parking lot, fled this, totaled out my car, fled the scene of an accident, left my wallet and cell phone in the car, and took off on foot, and I got away. Um, I got away, uh, ended up going home, um, called a buddy of mine the next morning, and then my parents found out my car was totaled out, so I left there. And I ended up calling a buddy of mine the next morning and uh, seeing if I could uh, come stay with them. I got to figure out how I'm going to get to Dallas because I'm not going back to prison. And, uh, yeah, he told me, come stay over here for a little bit, but you can't stay the night here. I said, that's fine. I just can't stay at my parents. And um, so I went over there, and he said, 
but you can stay at my brother's house. He has a trailer behind this church. I said, all right, that's cool. And so he takes me over there and he takes me over there and uh, his brother shows up and he hands me a Bible and he says, you can stay the night here, bro, but you got to go to church with me in the morning and I'll be back in the morning. So that's fine. And I opened up the Bible and uh, first thing that I came to that was highlighted was Jeremiah's 29:11. It says, for I know the plans I have for you declares the Lord plans to prosper you and not to harm you, but to give you hope in the future. And I cried out to God. I didn't have no phone or nothing. So I was just in that, that trailer by myself. And I told God, if you get me out of this, I'll serve you with everything I got in me. And I walked into that church that next day. And um, I was actually in a, a wife beater, you know, Jay's fitted hat. And I was like, man, these people look at me like I'm crazy. But they didn't. The pastor came up to me, put his hands on my shoulder and told me that, that, we're, that we're glad you're here and that you're welcome here. And keep in mind... Uh, so when they did that, uh, they did that altar call at the end of the service. I went up there, and I knew God did something different in me that day. But I still was bound by a lot of things that I was still struggling with. So I started doing good for a while, and um, started going to the gym, and got a good job, um, and uh, went and picked up a friend of mine to uh, go to the gym with me, and uh, ended up taking a left turn on a green light. Uh, but it's yield on green, got the arrow. And uh, as soon as I was taking that left turn, I was going about 30, and then the SUV was going 60 or 65. And my buddy said, no, 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 he grabbed the wheel, and then the SUV hit us on uh, head on, um, spun the car around three or four times, uh, caved in the whole front end. Um, I got out of the car, and I couldn't breathe. And I remember uh, some lady running up to me and telling me, sir, you need to sit down, you're in shock. And I, was, I just pushed her, and I told her, get away from me, I'm fine. And then I sat down, and, um, and the cops all showed up, and uh, the ambulance told me, they said, you should be really messed up right now, the, from considering the, how the way that front end of that car is. And I was like, I'm fine, I need to go home. And uh, they said, no, you really need to go to the hospital. I said, I'm not going to the hospital, I'm going home. And uh, so I had someone come pick me up and take me home. And I was, had a lot of real bad whiplash a week late. Uh, the next couple of days I found out that I had fractured ribs, but I walked away from it. Um, but that set in motion to, uh, start, didn't have a vehicle anymore. And, uh, the job that I was at. So I ended up living, uh, in these trailers over in Willis, which wasn't a good environment for me. So here I am at a crossroads to a point where the battle had already started raging inside of me. But um, with the flesh and, and what God was doing. And um, I tried to sell weed again. But it's like I was uh, in limbo. I, I wasn't moving forward, but I wasn't moving backwards. And uh, I went and picked up some Xanax bars and a guy stole them from me. And I had my ribs wrapped up. Um, the, one of the guys that came over to the trailers, so there was a lot of people, a lot of traffic in and out of those trailers and stuff. And uh I had passed out and I woke up the next day and my stuff was gone. And, um, I had, uh, called him and I told him, um, I told him, I said, you know, I'm going to give you opportunity to bring my stuff back to me. And he, he started cursing me out. And I told him, I said, yeah, I said, you really want to reconsider bringing my stuff back to me? And he was like, just telling me all sorts of stuff. And I said, okay, I promise you, I can get you touched in 24 hours. So I was enraged. 
And uh, I called my buddy Johnny and, and I told him, I said, man, anybody know where I can find this guy? He said, actually, that guy called me to take him out to Airtex to get a bag of Serenity. And I told him, I said, drive him out there and then bring him here. And um, so he did. And they smoked on the way back and the dude passed out. And I texted Johnny and I said, where are you at? And he said, he's already passed out in the passenger seat. And when Jonathan pulled up, I ripped open the door and I beat the crud out of this dude. And then I made him walk home. And took all his stuff. And um, I got on steroids. Started shooting up. And that just took me to a whole nother level. Where I was tripping. And I was working in this phone room at the time in Willis. And I was trying to sell drugs and smoke weed still. And, and still trying to, trying to say I was living for God. And, uh, and um, I remember outside that phone room on my break. I remember calling my pastor, and I had stopped going to church at this time. And I remember calling my pastor, and I was crying. And I told him, I said, man, I can't get right, man. I just can't get right. And his response was, you going to jail? <laughs> I was like, no. He was like, you all right? You been in an accident or something? I was like, no. He's like, then why don't you come back to church? And so I went back to church that day. And... uh a brother of mine came up to me and he said, I just want you to know you don't need that stuff. And I was like, what are you talking about? And he's like, you know what I'm talking about. You don't need that stuff. And he convicted me at that time because I was shooting up all these steroids. And uh, that day I went back to that trailer and I threw all the steroids in the trash and ran a post cycle. And uh, then I started talking with my pastor and uh, he started uh so I told him I was working in this phone room and I wasn't making no money. He said, well, why don't you come work for me on the weekends doing moonwalks? I was like, all right. So I started going staying the weekends at my pastor's house. And at that time, I, I never saw anybody live the way that they lived. And uh, it was different. Nothing like anything I've ever came out of. You know, they had prayer at night um, with their kids. And that's... And there was a lot of peace and joy in that home. And I come from a, a crazy environment. So it was, it was different to me to actually see something like that. And um, every time my pastor would drop me back off at the weekend, I'm like, man, I hate coming over here. They're all smoking weed and doing all this and tired. And uh, the following weekend when I went back to live with my, uh, went back to my pastor's house to do moonwalks, he had said, uh, him and his wife called me downstairs and asked me, Hey, me and my wife have been praying, but we want to know if you would like to come live with us and, uh, and uh, stay here and work for my moonwalk company and get mentored and discipled. And I told him, yeah. And uh, so I lived and moved over there, and God did a, lot, a major work in my life there. I, I actually had a TV upstairs. I never turned it on because I really wanted, I wanted God to change my life. I was tired. I had a little girl. And I was like, either, either I'm going to be dead or in prison. Because in my mind, throughout the whole time of, you know, 16, 17, 18, 19, 20, I didn't think I would see the age of 24 the way I was living. And so I moved in with him and uh, he mentored me. And uh, I put him through a little, quite a bit. Um, and then about a year in living with him, I... I asked God, I said, man, I've been growing, I've been obedient, but I'm tired of doing moonwalks. And I said, you open up a door for me. 
And I remember sitting, and I'd always cut hair when I was a kid. Uh, my uh, my mom, I had an afro, and she'd take me to school. She'd take me to get a haircut like every two months, and then she'd just tell them to trim my curls. And in sixth grade, I wanted to, you know, get clean haircuts every two weeks, and she said, we can't afford that. So during Christmas, she bought me a pair of clippers, and she told me to figure it out. And so we had a medicine cabinet that folded on both ends. I used to sit on the sink and fade one side and try to learn how to fade the other side. And, but I pursued a different career path at that time and was living a different life. So when I lived with my pastor, I was sitting on his couch and I, it came to me. I said, I'm going to barber college. He said, yeah, you should do that. And at that point in time, uh, God had already put it on my heart to do Christian hip hop and Christian rap and stuff like that. But I had never rapped before, and I was. I told my pastor about it, and he said, uh, "Said yeah, you should do that." And uh, the enemy worked on a lot of doubt, a lot of fear, and uh, so I just said, "No, nah, I'm not doing that." I started going to barber college. Um, I got enrolled to go there, and I remember one of our music directors at my church came up to me, and he said, "Hey, I wrote this rock song about four years ago, and there's a part on it that's really fast, and um, the Lord never gave me nothing for it, but." Uh, Last night when I was praying, he put you on my heart and he put rap on my heart. And uh, he said, do you rap? I said, no. And he said, well, I know it's God because I don't even like rap music. <laughs> and he said, why don't you listen to it? And uh, you tell me, uh, maybe the Lord will put something on your heart. So I listened to it and uh, I wrote the verse to it. And uh, I dodged him at church for probably about a month and a half. Like every day that he'd get off the stage, I'd take off before he could talk to me. My mom came up to me and she said, son, uh, what's his name? Once you uh, been looking for you. And he says, hey, he wants to know if there's anything going on between y'all because you keep dodging him. I said, yeah, he wants me to do this rap song. And, uh, and she said, well, uh, does God want you to do it? I said, I think so. And she said, well, uh, have you wrote it? I said, yeah. She said, then why don't you do it? I said, I don't know. And then uh, for the next few days, she kept bugging me, asking me if I was going to call him. And so finally I did. I finally did call him. And I went to his house and I recorded it. And I told him, um, after I recorded, I said, God, this is what you want me to do. You're going to make the way because I have no idea what I'm doing. And uh, he did. Um, I started going through barber college, and as I was in barber college, I was putting together some music, and the mother of my child, uh, I get, ended up getting a phone call one day, and I'm already enrolled to go to barber college, and I ended up getting a phone call, and I had no idea who it was. Keep in mind that I hadn't talked to my, the mother of my child for a year. Like, we never had a conversation. I didn't even have her number. And... She, they were at, you know, at one point in time, the guy that she had left me for was trying to teach my daughter to call him daddy. And, um, so I was going through a lot. I kept, I consistently, even though, I, you know, I, I kept trying to get him to meet me, to fight me. He would never do that. Um, and I didn't talk to, so she had called me and she asked me to meet her somewhere and I told her, who is this? And she said, this is the mother of your child. She had me meet her at a Panera Bread and she sat down with her and this is the first time I ever saw her in a year. And she sat down and um, she told me that I was right about that guy and that, you know, he's trash and all this stuff. And I said, oh, that's cool. Like, I don't hold nothing against you. 
You know, I gave my life to the Lord. I'm really trying to grow in my faith. And um, I'm, about, I'm enrolled in Barber College. And I helped him move all our stuff out of his house while he was out of town. And so my, the mother of my child came back into my life, but we were two totally different people. Uh, she was consistently doing painkillers and doing things that I was doing back then. And I separated myself from all that. Um, and then uh, she had uh, told me that when we were in Barber College, when I was in school, that he had saw her at a gas station, grabbed her by the throat, which in turns I told her, I said, uh, well, uh, I'll take care of it. Let me talk to him. And she said, no, I'm going to take care of it. And I said, no, forget that. So I called him and I said, you want to grab the mother of my child by the throat? Why don't you come do me like that? And he said, I don't want any problems with you, Sonny. Um, he said, uh, he said, I don't want any problems with you. She's playing games. Um, she was at my house. I didn't get to see her at a gas station. She stayed the night here last night. And, um, and I found out that she was sleeping with Spike, which was another homeboy of mine before that. Um, and I said, send me the text messages and he sent them to me. So I called the mother of my child and I told her, I said, so I saw the messages and I said, you want to keep playing games? Like I did everything I'm trying to, I did everything that I could to try to separate myself from people and that lifestyle. And you got me in the midst of coming back over here and about to do something to some dude when you're the one that's playing all the games. So on my way home from Barber College off of 1960 that day, I was praying and I was asking God, you know, um, and I ended up calling the mother of my child and, and telling her, I said, you know what, I, I need you to go through my parents for a while because I need to be completely done with you. Because if you're not beneficial to my life, you're toxic to it. Mm. And uh, at that time, she had went back to... Um, that guy again. Um, and at that time he was on crack. And the mother of my child got hooked on crack. Um, and so halfway through Barber College, her roommates were telling me what was going on. I had called CPS on her and CPS didn't want to do anything. Um, they had called me and at that time I already got a lawyer and got some help to get a lawyer. And they had called me and, um, told me, Mr. Hernandez, we went and looked at your daughter at school and, and she seems fine. And keep in mind at the time that they had said that uh, my daughter did have cocaine in her system when they said that she looked fine. And so, so um, I said, you know what? I don't need your help. And they said, well, what do you want to happen, Mr. Hernandez? I keep trying to tell y'all that I fear for my daughter's safety. I know she's going to crack houses. She's two years old, and you're not hearing me out. Why don't you go look at her mom? And she's how old? My daughter was two. Good grief. And I said, why don't you go look at, look at her mom? And I said, you know what? Don't even worry about it. I'll take care of it. I already got a lawyer. And I hung up on him. And there was a lot of people praying at church for my daughter, a lot of people praying for me. Um, and one weekend when I got my daughter, at two, so she really couldn't talk to me or tell me what was going on with her. But the next day after I got her on my weekend, I seen that she was banging her head against her, um, against her uh, play thing, play kitchen set, and then she sat on the floor and started slapping her head. And I told my mom, I said, There's, that's not normal behavior. Like, for a two-year-old, it's almost like she's having withdrawals. And... Um, so I took my daughter to a clinic over here off of 336 and 105, and uh, I did a hair follicle test on her. 
And um, I was in barber college at the time when they called me and they said, Mr. Hernandez, your test results are ready. And I said, can you tell them to me over the phone? And they said, no, we need you to come pick them up. So I called my mom and I said, they want me to come pick them up. So my mom and my stepdad met me at that, at that clinic. And I walk in and they tell me, we want you to know that we're really sorry about this, but your daughter really needs you right now. And I said, it's like that? And they handed me an envelope and I opened the envelope and it said in a three-month period, my daughter had 2,952 milligrams of cocaine in her system. That's like a gram and a half within a three-month period. And they say that uh, within a child, um, since their immune system's growing, if you're smoking in a closed area with them, that it absorbs in their hair faster than a human, grown human being because of their immune system. So they were smoking in closed areas, crack around my daughter. Um, and there was a lot of stories that her roommate had told me of what ha- some of the things that had happened. Um, and I asked them, I said, uh, at the clinic, I said, did y'all report this? And they told me, no, we're, um, we're not, we'd check, but by law, since you voluntarily brought her in, we're not allowed to report it, but we recommend that you do. And my mom asked me, what do you want to do, son? And I said, I need to pray. So I went out to my car and I prayed. And then I called her work and I asked, uh, is Morgan there? And they said, no, nah, she just went to go pick up Audrey. And so I told my mom, we need to go to the daycare. And on the way there, I was praying. And uh, the Lord told me, I want you to show her mercy. And I was so mad and full of rage. And I was like, man, that's my child. I don't want her to go to prison. And in the Bible, it says, be merciful to others if you want God to be merciful to you. And um, so I went to the, the daycare and she was putting her in the car. And I knew that the only reason my daughter is perfectly fine right now is that God protected my daughter. Because that's the amount of cocaine she had in her system. And that could kill any grown human being. And so, but my daughter, nothing was wrong with her mentally, anything like that. My, and so uh, I showed up at the, the daycare and... Uh, I saw her putting her in the car and I said, where's Audrey? And she said, uh, she's in the car. I said, give her to my stepdad. And I handed her a copy of the test results. And I told her, I said, I have two choices right now. I can go down to the police station. I can file on you. And you will go to jail for child endangerment, neglect, and a bunch of other stuff. And I'll get Audrey. Or I have a lawyer and you sign her over to me and you go get some help. And so she said, I'm not going to fight you on it. She signed Audrey over to me. Uh, she was on supervised visits at that point in time. So I was working at a gas station and I was a full-time student. And I was working at a gas station in Willis at night and I was making $200 a week. And I'd be there to like 12 every night, well, a few nights out of the week. And so I told God, I said, I said, well, I can't do this no more and take care of a two-year-old. So I'm going to step out and do mobile barber and I'm going to trust that you're going to make the way. And he did. By the time I finished barber college, I was making $600 a week mobile. I'd leave work early and go cut four, five, six hairs and uh, go home and take care of my little girl. Um, and um, so the mother of my child made me believe that, that she had gotten clean and was doing good. And she moved into her grandmother's. And then um, one day when... Uh, her grandmother came and knocked on my door and it was on a Monday on my day off and I, was, I had finished barber college already and I was working at a barber shop. And I was working at a barber shop and she came and knocked on my door and she said, where's Audrey? I said, and she's at school. She's at daycare. 
And she said, you don't know? And I said, well, I kind of had some ideals, but I wasn't sure. Why don't you come inside and tell me about it? And she had come inside and told me about um, what the mother of my child was doing. And then uh, that she was back on stuff and tripping and thought there was bugs in Audrey's hair. And so I called the mother of my child. And I called the school and said, under no circumstances, she allowed to come pick her up. And then I called her mom and said, I need you to come to my house and pee in a cup for me. And she tripped out on me and told me that you're not going to threaten me. And said, I'm not threatening you. I just got her daughter's best interest at heart. Disappeared. I didn't see her for three months. At that time, I was really active in my church and uh, watching God really radically change my life. Um, so I was uh, one of our young adults leaders, our youth leaders, or helped with that and stuff. And um, I went to our student life camp and I ended up getting a phone call like three or four months later and telling me that she needed to see my daughter and, and all this. And God had uh, moved me from that barber shop and moved me over to... Um, a little studio where I rented out and I just started, started my own business. And um, I said, when we get back, I don't know where you've been at four months, but when we get back, we can schedule a supervised visit, but I'm not home right now. And when I got back, I had just started that business and I released my first album, uh, a mixtape called Breaking Chains Volume 1. And I started doing outreaches and stuff like that and an urban, urban missionary kind of and uh, when we got back, I got served papers to go back to court to change conditions of custody. And uh, so the money that I had saved up for my business, to grow my business, I had to put it all on a lawyer. And there was days that I would be twiddling my thumb like, God, why you bring me over here? You know, I ain't even making any near the money that I was making at the other place. And now I'm going through this. And my, I had a, a big, I, I, I quit, I kept questioning God, like, if I would have just sent her to prison, I wouldn't be going through this again, right? And God brought me back to uh, James 1, where it says, uh, count it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, when you face trials of many kinds, because let, 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 because uh, it helps build perseverance and let, perseverance continuous work in you so that you will be complete not lacking anything and that that's when I realized that all the stuff that I'd gone through it was God just molding me to be the man that he had called me to be and so I ended up going back to court and agreeing and putting all these conditions on her um, where I don't think she had told her lawyer about the fact that that she had cocaine in her system. And so when we went to mediation, the, her lawyer said that they're requesting for all standard visitation rights. And I laughed at him. And my lawyer put his hand on my leg and he said, uh, my client's concern is that he did a hair follicle test on his daughter. And uh, she came back with cocaine in her system. And her lawyer looked like he did not know any of that and said, okay, we need a break. And we separated. And then they came to an agreement where I would pay for all her hair follicle tests. And, um, uh, all these phases within two years. Um, so this time I'm trying to run a business and, and uh, take care of my daughter and um, moving forward in my walk with God. And she ended up completing all her phases. And now 
I can honestly say that she is a good mom now. She had another little girl, and um, she does what she needs to do for Audrey. Um, in the process of that, my daughters live with me, and um, it's been a consistent trials, but it uh, helps grow me to where I'm at now. And I released this. I released. Um, I released the second album, but at that point in time. Uh, I was doing outreaches at my church and my pastor had uh, got a phone call from someone who wanted to rent a moonwalk for an outreach. And he had told him, well, that's kind of far. You'd probably be better off finding out there. But let me ask you what it's for. He said, we do Christian hip hop outreaches. And at that time, um, he said, well, I got a guy here who does the same thing. And so the guy whose name was Bobby Weatherford told him, uh, give me his number and uh, maybe he'll come to this outreach. And if he works out, he'll go on tour with us. And so he hit me up and I went and did this outreach and they told me, you're, you're perfect for the, exactly what we're looking for to go on tour. And I asked them, how long is the tour? And they said, 21 days. And I said, I can't do that. I got a kid to take care of. And um, God moved every single one of my excuses out of the way. Um, to the point where it was so evident that um, three days before we were supposed to go on tour, me and my daughter were pulling into the church and we got hit by a drunk driver from behind and that lady flipped her truck three times and me and my daughter walked away from it. And she was going at least 75 to 80 miles per hour and hit us from behind. Yeah. I remember that. Yeah. And, um, I said, okay, guy, like I don't have a car now. I'm still $600 short to pay all my bills. Um, but I'm going to do this cause I feel like I, I feel like this is what you want me to do. And I see the enemy coming at me. And um, I went on tour. The first place that we stopped at uh, was called The River. And um, we did uh, some outreaches in Louisiana. And uh, at that time, the pastor had came up to my brother James, who was overseas breaching the darkness outreaches, and told him, hey, you know, I see that it's all about Jesus with y'all, and I want to sow into that. And he said, cool, can you pray for us? He said, no, uh, I feel the Lord wants me to sow in financially. And so he, he said, who do I make this check out to? And the check was for exactly $600 was the exact amount that I needed to cover the rest of my bills. And I told God, I said, I'm still $600 short, but I'm going to trust that you're going to make that way because I've already seen you move so much out of the way and I'm going to go. And then he wrote a check for $600 to cover the rest of my bills for the rest of the 21 days. And we had over 160 some salvations on that tour. Um, and so I came back here, and uh, yeah, um, God's consistently moving in my life. I oversee Christ Connection Ministries, which is growing. Brought my brother Knox in on that, and uh, we're putting together two more albums. We're trying to schedule some outreaches after this uh, COVID thing hits, and uh, after it clears, then we'll try to go on another tour. Um, and God consistently keeps moving and moving people out of the directions of my life. He's radically changed my life and changed my desires of my heart towards him. Um, I walk in love and, uh, my daughter is an amazing prayer warrior. Um, she looks up to her daddy in so many ways and we're actually doing a song together. And, um, she tells me that she, she, she loves Jesus. And it was only because of Jesus that, I could be the father that I am. I could be the man that I am. You know, it's only because of Jesus that I'm not, I don't, the thought process that I have is far away from the person that I once was. And my mom says it all the time that, you know, that she said 
she knew that the only way that anybody could ever change my son is if God did it. And uh, I'm consistently and keep growing and, and I'm still growing. And uh, God's continuing to mold me because he's the potter and we're the clay. And I just want to continue to seek him through each and every one of my days. Pretty amazing story, isn't it, guys? Oh, yeah. I uh, I definitely can, can agree. I go to the church. I've walked away for a long time, but come back when I realized what I was missing. But uh, I can definitely say, daughters, help you get there where you need to be quick. Actually, you go to the church where he was trying to do the parking lot. I, I figured. I figured. <laughs> yeah. I know that parking lot very well. I did two years out there. <laughs> Rain or shine. Kind of surprised the two of you haven't met. Probably different years. That right, I'm not a morning person, so unless he did third service, uh-uh. All righty, you're working on your third album right now? Yes, I am. I'm working on the Unashamed album, and we're also working on the Christ Connections, Get Connected, Mixtape Volume 1. Now, that is Christ Connections with a Z. With a Z. You can look them up on YouTube, mm-hmm. and they can find you on YouTube as well. You can right? find me on YouTube, Spotify, Google Play, Apple Music, and a bunch of other platforms that I don't know about. But kind of it, all the same, uh, yeah, a lot of the same platforms you can find our podcast. You just look up E.G. Uh, T-H-A, so it's E.G. The Overcomer. Excellent. And folks, I highly recommend you check out his music, share it as much as possible. This man is talented. Even though he never did rap before, uh, he had no interest in it. God called him to it, and, and he knocked it out of the park with everything he does. He says that he doesn't uh, call the equipped. He equips the call. So Nice. That's an amazing testimony. Uh, I'm just... Yeah, I appreciate you sharing. Yeah, I I saw your eyebrows raise a couple of times going, what? Yeah. Yeah. All right. All Jesus. He's the one that gets the glory. Brother, that's an emotional... yeah, I, yeah, we're going to need a drink after this. <laughs> but not as... No. Not With not. good reason. <laughs> no. We will toast them some water. <laughs> yeah. All right, anybody, any final thoughts from anyone? Any questions? You got a last message? Um, I would just encourage the listeners that um, God's got a big plan for your life. I would really encourage you to seek out his will for your life because I'll tell you right now, like whatever God's got from you is far more greater than you could plan for your own life. Amen. If he can redeem Estevan, he can redeem anybody. Amen. One heck of a redemption too, it is. Love you, brother. Love you too. All right, let's roll the outro. Look us up, everybody. Find us on uh, Facebook. At the Bourbon Badass. Let's hit me hit us up on Parlor too. Instagram, all at the Bourbon Badass. For Big J, Chris, and EG the Overcomer. I'm Radar. We are out of here.